You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. Dan, I get to serve as one of the pastors here at the Village, and it is uh, good to be together. We meet regularly on Sundays because we're reminded of um, the newness of life in Christ, and that's why we do it. And we're really glad you're here, particularly if this is your first time with us. We are um, doing this series called A Divided Church. We're looking through the book of 1 Corinthians, and uh, it's been great. This is actually the last week, which is insane, because it feels like we've been in this letter that Paul wrote to this church in this city called Corinth. And um, I hope you've been appreciating kind of going through the whole book and just for you to be aware, especially maybe if you're newer, one of the things we, uh, we, every so often we do different series like the church plant series. We look at some topics, but our preference is actually to go through books of the Bible and just preach straight through. One of the benefits of that is it forces you to preach whatever's there, even stuff that you might normally in your flesh might want to avoid because it's like, that's kind of touchy. That'd be a little weird to do. How are we going to do it forces us to trust God and get the full counsel of what he's given to people. So we appreciate that. And here's the hope I, fo- I hope you've gotten through 1 Corinthians. Man, this was a jacked up church. Now, I don't know what you feel about our church or other churches. This was a horrifically jacked up, messed up, divided church. But praise God for his hope. Praise God for his commitment to his church that he works even in that and it gives us hope as we're uh, seeking to be his church now. But we're coming to the end of it here. And this is the last sermon today. And today's, uh, we're going to go through the end of chapter 15 and, and some of chapter 16. The this, this title for today's sermon is How to Win in Life. And some of you who go to church a lot here, you're like, that does not sound like the title of a sermon we usually do at our church. Usually the title is like, How to Die, or like, How to Suffer Well, or... Like, how to win in life, you're like, yo, did I walk into the wrong church today? Because that sounds like the seven principles to a better you or something. Um, I want to make clear, I believe in winning. I I believe we want to have a good life. We want to win, and we want to dig into that. And I'm I'm guessing, though, sometimes there's misunderstanding of what that means. So if we went out on the street and just talked to random folk and say, yo, what does it mean to win in life? Uh, I'm, I'm pretty certain some of the answers we, we get would be things like, you know what? It's like having good health and like having a body that doesn't break down and, and you know, being healthy and sickness and, and living a nice long life. Or maybe it would be, um, you know, being able to find that person and raise a good family and, you know, establish some lineage. And, you know, that, that's what winning in life is. Or maybe it's like, you know, killing this program and not killing in a bad way, but killing in a good way and getting a plum job and, and rising through corporate ranks and becoming known as an expert in my field. Or maybe for some of you, you got like aspirations like a podcast. You're like, you know, I got stuff I need to share with the world. And that would be winning. Kind of, punt, you know, really press into my dreams. And, and I don't think any of those things are off base. But, uh, and I, I get the point is, um, we need to know what does it mean for us to win. And I, I'm going to guess in a room like this, there's so many different ideas what it means for you to um, think that you would be winning in life. But what I'm going to suggest is how we think about winning, it, it will impact the way we live. 
in, in our minds, in our, in our vision, whatever winning looks like to you, that will guide how you determine your daily, regular plans and steps. So it's important for each of us to understand what it means to win. And my hope today is to help us to see how God understands winning. Because that might line up according to how you view it. It might not. So let me pray as we ask the Lord's guidance here. Lord, thank you so much for reminders of your presence in new life of these, of these little ones. And even in sending off blessed partner members of the church to go off and to uh, help others to know you from what they've gleaned here. And even through this book that we've been going, this letter to this jacked up church in the city of Corinth, how you've been so faithful to them and you will also be faithful to us. And Lord, as we close this series out, would you remind us what it means to win? What, it, what do you think that means, Lord? And as many people are in this room, may we hear what we need to from you. Holy Spirit, uh, move in this place, breathe in this place as you, as you would for your own glory. So we thank you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to jump right into it. We're going to pick up where uh, we left off last week. and look at verse 35 of chapter 15. Let me read. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There was one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So we're continuing the thought from last week as we looked at the idea of the resurrection. We, we looked at this idea of how the resurrection offers us hope even in this life and how we should spend our time and energy and our efforts. And if you remember, Paul talked about this idea that if, if Jesus was raised from the dead, then all those who are in him, who identify in Jesus, they will also have their bodies raised one day when he returns. And I'm just going to stop right there for a second and acknowledge, for some of you, that might just sound like strange, weird, yo, I thought this church was kind of grounded and talk about like maybe serving the poor or like being a kind neighbor, maybe loving refugees. But yo, you talking about like Doctor Who kind of stuff, like raising people from what? Seriously, you're talking like this is real, like, like you're reading Narnia and like you're actually believing this. That guy up front's insane. You didn't tell me this is an insane church. Maybe some of you are feeling that, and maybe you've even been in the church for a while, and things like this are really hard to grasp. And if, if so, maybe a, a little word of encouragement, you'd be right there with the Corinthian church, because I think they were having a hard time believing this as well, that when they heard about beliefs and teachings about things like the bodily resurrection, that's why Paul is saying in verse 35, Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? You know, they're asking, yo, 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 Paul, uh, like, are you meaning a literal body like that? Wow, what, what would that mean? Um, they were having a hard time believing that their bodies would be raised like Jesus. So Paul uses some metaphors here from their own experience 
and maybe some other culture to help explain a little bit. In verses 36 to 38, we see that he, he, he brings an agrarian language. He talks about seeds. And his idea is to bring a very natural metaphor and to be able to help them see resurrection. Yeah, it sounds all like gobbledygook, like but it's actually a very natural principle. That, that when you have a seed that goes into the ground, it dies, but it comes to life. And, and it may take on a very different form, but the essence is still that seed. The DNA is still that seed. It's just been reborn into a different thing. But for that plant to come, for that wheat to come, it had to come from a seed going into the ground and dying. In this sense, he's, again, he's helping them see, yo, resurrection in one way, it's very natural. It's very natural. It's like you see something one day and you pour into it with the hope that something new is going to come out of it. We also see in, in verses 39 and 41 there, he, he talks about this idea of uh, the body might look very different in resurrection. And this is, this is a good word for us because just because in our minds, and we have to remember we're finite. But for us, just because we have a hard time sometimes imagining a body different than the one that might exist now in resurrection, doesn't mean it's not possible. And, and this is understanding resurrection as an aspect of God's created order. In that he gives different forms to each being. In the same way, resurrection will take on a different form in the body. The, the big point here is Paul, he's trying to make clear, is that the body will be resurrected for those who are in Christ, even if it may look different at that time. And this was helpful for the Corinthian church because they might be like some of us as well. And we saw this in some of the earlier teachings in the letter where we talk about issues of, like, say, sexuality. And what they were doing is they were dividing what it means to be a spiritual person. So if you're really of the spirit, um, that's the important stuff, and that's going to live forever. But, yo, the stuff of the body, like what you do with your body, even how you conduct yourself in your sexual ethics, that's separate. That's not the spiritual stuff. And Paul has continued to say, no, it's all part of being uh, of Christ. Like your soul, your spirit, but it's also your body that's all important. Because their idea, the body, this is just like a hunk of flesh. It can tear, it can bleed, but it's like a container for the soul. It's just like a temporary housing for this soul. That's the thing that one day is going to, maybe if they thought it would be like little fluttering angels or somewhere and looking down on the bodies. Uh, but... But Paul is addressing this incorrect belief about the body because in God's order, the physical body is a wondrous creation. Amen? Amen? I love the human body. I don't know myself or my own body sometimes, but I love the idea of the human body because this idea of the beauty of resurrection, it will be that same body that is raised. It will be your body that's raised. You're like, hold on. You mean I don't get to like get a second chance on this, John? This, this is what I get. Um, I don't know what it's going to look like. What it seems to suggest, it'll be different. It'll be perfect. It'll be glorified. And what it means is the body, even today, what we do with it, it matters. Body is important. Creation is important. And we don't have time to fully go into that. But the material is important. We aren't Christians are not people who say, yeah, one day this is all be obliterated and it doesn't matter because it's all about heaven and floating around and playing harps. And so this stuff, we just kind of make it through and it doesn't. No, God actually seems to suggest it's all important. It will be renewed and reclaimed. Let's continue with thought in verse 42. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. 
It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So we, we just saw earlier the, the resurrection of the body in one sense is very natural. It's, it's, a, it's a process of the created order, but it's also supernatural. Resurrection is also supernatural. Um, there should be a sense as you think about resurrection that it, it, you feel like, yo, this is beyond my ability to conceive of reality. It's beyond my understanding. It's, like, it's not like anything else in the world. I mean, it's very real as the body, but it's also very spiritual and not of this world. It, it's beyond our compre- comprehension. It's beyond our understanding, and it requires a belief in the supernatural. And depending on who you are, when I say, yeah, it's probably going to require a belief in the supernatural, you might hear that in a very negative way. You might hear, oh, this is the part where I kind of got to check out of here because I'm down with the whole like community and loving our city. But yo, I, I, I'm just not there when it comes to the supernatural stuff. That's just weird. That sounds like make-believe kind of stuff. But maybe what you, and maybe some of you might hear as kind of negative and cutting you off, um, I want to invite you into a place of hope. Because what it's saying, it's, it's a hopeful matter to believe in something that is so different than what we've always known. It's hopeful. And this is the purpose of it. It's hopeful to believe in this idea of resurrection when all we've known is brokenness and hurt and pain. Because what's promised to come is drastically different in a good way. And it's so much better than anything we've experienced. That's why it should feel a little foreign. That's why it should feel a little crazy. Because it's unlike anything we have on this earth. Because as beautiful as these bodies are, the one common thing that each one of us experience in this world is the mortal decline of these same bodies. And I am fighting it with everything I have. I'm, you know, I'm getting to an age where I'm caref- well, more careful about what I'm trying to put into my body, how I'm exercising, how I'm trying to sleep. I'm more aware, yo, um, I can't keep up. You know, I used to exercise and I'm good for like a week from one workout. Now I got to exercise like every day just to kind of keep it even. Yo, I used to be able to eat like a college student and feel great. Now I eat like a college student. I got weird nightmares and I can't sleep and my body's doing strange things the next day. It's, yo, wow. My body's declining. This is the great equalizer in our world. It doesn't matter your skin tone. It doesn't matter where you were born in the world. It doesn't matter what your religious inclination is. It doesn't matter if you're a man or you're a woman. It doesn't matter if you're young or if you're old. It doesn't matter if you're poor or you're wealthy. The one common thing is every one of our mortal bodies is in decline. So I got you, right? Because you thought, how to win in life. Positive message. Oh, man, there he goes again. And the thing is, part of the human story is we do everything to try to hold it off. We eat good. 
We even experiment with like essential oils and vegan foods and crossfits and, you know, different sniff things we can sniff and like things to operate our mind like Enneagrams and try to fix it so we have better self-awareness. We do, we do all these things to try to prolong this life. Make it like we are, especially in America, we are a culture that's obsessed with youth. That's why it's embarrassing when you got dudes like my age. Uh, hopefully I don't do this too much, but you're like, yo, why are they dressing like they in high school? There's something weird about it. We are obsessed with like youth. And we don't know how to age gracefully because that's part of the journey. And it's funny when you think about prolonging life. Um, I, I know I don't look like a geek at all, but I am. I'm a geek. I love sci-fi, right? I love sci-fi. And some of the sci-fi movies and shows I like is like when you got those weird dudes who are trying to extend their life and they usually got a lot of money because you need money dudes. And like, it's like they go outside of themselves to find a way to like get some things implanted in them so that or like cryogenically freeze them for like hundreds of years to wake them up when technology one day is going to let them live for 300 years. Y'all know that's not happening, but they got money. So they're pouring it into that. And, and, you know, it's this desire to look outside of one's body, to try to find the answer, try to find the key, try to find that mag- uh, magic bullet to overcome the perishable. Because we all see it coming. Everything is perishable. It's breaking. It's in decline. It's crumbling. Yet we will do whatever in our power, within our finances, within our intellect, to try to find a way to stave off perishable flesh. And usually we look outside of ourselves. But here's the radical thing about the Christian faith. And if you're new to it, maybe this is radically different for you as well. But the Christian faith is radical because it affirms actually this common human longing to want to overcome illness. So Christians aren't like sick people like bring on the sickness because we don't care about these bodies. No, we're like, we also want to hold off illness and disease and brokenness of life. But the thing is, and here's where it's crazy. We don't do it by escaping the body. But God does it by transforming our bodies themselves. That's the difference. That's the radical nature of resurrection. God's promising, yes, I also hate death. I also hate disease. I hate sickness. I hate that bodies are crumbling. That's not the way it was designed to be. But resurrection is coming when it's going to take all that was broken. And it's not going to take you somewhere else to get it done. It's going to happen within yourself. You yourself will be resurrected in a whole new flesh. And it will still be a body, but it will also be soul. And talks here, right, about how this transformation from the mortal to the supernatural happens. Because, yeah, this is kind of natural, but there's also supernatural elements. It's the spirit of Jesus being found in us. When the spirit of Jesus in us, we start to get a glimpse of that now. But it's also giving us a foreshadowing to what is to come. Perfect wholeness in who we are. But the body's still present. And that's when we see when Jesus, you know, it talks here about the second Adam. That's Jesus. First Adam was Adam. Second Adam was Jesus, the new Adam, the second man. He came, and what Adam could not do, Jesus came, and he did do. And we see that Jesus, he died. But one of the things we celebrate is that he was raised from the grave. But here's the crazy thing about it. You would think that when Jesus was raised from the grave, he'd come back looking like the rock, right? Like like twice as big. Like, he's just amazing. Like, every... Yo, It said he came back in his real body and he had scars. Like he had the same scars. He he was recognizable. It's not like people saw him and say, okay, you look like turbo version of Jesus. It was still Jesus. He was hungry. 
He wanted some fish. He wanted a fillet of fish. Well, maybe not a fillet of fish, but he wanted, a, I'm thinking Lent right now, right? McDonald's. He wanted some fish. He was hungry. He came back in a real body. But guys, it was also a supernatural resurrection because they say he walked through walls and that part would have freaked me out. Fish, not so much. Walking through walls, I would have been a little freaked out. I'm like, okay, you look like Jesus, but it's a little strange. Mortal, yet spiritual. And Paul goes on to describe the fullest extent of this bodily resurrection victory. Look at uh, verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? This is trash talk right there. That's like biblical trash talk right there. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's writing and talking about the resurrection renewal of the body. He's saying we ultimately see that in the conquering of this thing called death. This thing called death that entered the world through sin, as it describes there. That has power over every single person. There is no person ever born on this earth who has found a way to escape this curse of death. Here's the thing. I think I'm getting old and crusty, and I am, but I still never get used to death. No matter how much I see, it doesn't matter whether it's the tragedy of a crazy terrorist shooting in New Zealand or it's um, a little child, you know, who was not being able to born, be fully born in the womb yet. Or if it's someone who, in the prime of their life, tragically lost their life. Or if it's even someone who lived a very long natural life. But there's a reason why people, when they're at a funeral, they all come and say, I don't know what to say because we were not created to understand this evil of death. There is a reason why you feel confused and confounded when confronted with death because it is unnatural. As natural as it seems, we have to recognize it was not in the natural order for death to be part of our existence. And the more tragic the death, the more your brain is trying to wrap around it and you can't. You don't have words. You don't have comprehension. Maybe you can find some nice little metaphors, but it's still lacking because we were not created to understand this curse of the breaking of the body called physical death. And death... It's cross-cultural. You know, we talk a lot about cross-cultural things at our church. The thing that strikes me is where we see so much differences in people. You know what strikes me though is when I just see images of like mourning for death, especially large mournings, it looks the same in every culture. When you have a large group of people just mourning, it looks the same in every culture. Whether you are white or brown, it doesn't matter. 
Whether you are wearing different items of clothing, religious garb, it doesn't matter. The one common idea is uh, mourning and weeping and grieving for something that we do not understand in this life. It is unnatural. It is a perversion of God's good created order. So we're talking about winning. We're talking about winning in this life. Here's the thing. No one... Whatever the situation, no one really looks like a winner at the end of this earthly life. No matter how prized you thought their life was during it, at the end, no one looks like they're a winner. Everyone looks kind of sad. Whatever the condition of the body, everyone has lost in a sense. They've all succumbed. I think a very real example from my father. He passed away about a year and a half now. And I've described him to some of you. And some of you knew him. He, he was like a really strong, robust, like hefty man. But cancer ravaged his body to the point like at the end. I mean, he was literally like half his weight. Because it's just a long haul of just his body wasting away. I'm like, wow. He got beat. <laughs> he, wow, this did a ringer on him. He looks like he lost at the end there. But here's where we heard last week, if this world is all we have to live for, we are to be more pitied than anyone else. Because if we end there, heck yeah, that's a tragic story. Wow, that's a pitiful way to leave and end. But here's where the kingdom ways of God are radically countercultural. Because in the world's eyes... Bodily death may be the ultimate example of losing. Like you might have done everything to try to hold it off as long as you can. Maybe you even got into triple digits. You are good health, but ultimately it got you. So bodily death in the world's eyes is the ultimate example of losing. But here's guys, here's, and here's what will rock your mind. In God's ways, physical death may actually the supreme, be the supreme means of winning for those who are found in Christ Jesus. That for those who are found in Christ Jesus, when this earthly life actually hits its end, as it will for every single one of us, as tragic as it might be, I'm not saying it's not sad, but in a sense, it's also victory. It's also winning. We have to understand that there is a countercultural idea. So when my dad, yeah, by the end there, it was really sad. He looked really pitiful. He's like, whoa, he doesn't look like the guy we knew for Superman the whole life. But we were also praising God. We we're like, yo, he's got a new body now. Whoa, he's in glory now. Wow, there's no more pain. There's no more of that sickness ravaging his body, eating away. There's no more of not just the physical, but I'm sure even the mental sickness that was torment. There's none of that anymore. It's been made renewed. And man, is he winning. Wow, is he winning. We have to understand this countercultural idea of winning because in the world's eyes, it does not look like winning. It doesn't. Um, I love in our family, we like doing games. And you see one example of our high-tech games at our house, right? We're old school. Um, I, I love in our house because we're all competitive. We're discovering everyone in our family is very competitive. So it makes for some tense situations. Um, when they were little, we played games like Candyland. And they've come to, they came to discover pretty quickly, yo, you don't need to do a single thing to win in Candyland. It's, it has nothing to do with how well you play the game. And you get tired of it after a while. You're like, ah, it's by chance. You know, shoots and ladders. I didn't do anything to win this game. When you're little, you still celebrate like you won, but you know you didn't win. But it's fun as we're starting to get, I'm, I'm looking forward to Monopoly. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't if I want to keep our family together, but I'm looking forward to Monopoly. 
But in the meantime, you have all these different games, right? And the goal of a game is to win. And we love it. We love it. We, we do Pictionary now. We do different things. We get it out. And the goal is to whether accumulate as much as you can. It's to try to, whatever the measures of winning in that game are, you try to get as many of those. Whether it's accumulating properties, whether it's advancing on the board, whether it's moving forward, whether it's crushing your opponents. Some of your games are violent, right? But whether it's like crushing your opponents, getting rid of them. Like we have the definitions of success and winning. And, and the thing is, we can get so accomplished when we win that game, right? We are so happy. And you try, I mean, you're old enough, you're mature, you don't want to like gloat over people. Some of you do, some of you don't apologize at all. You, you got sanctification needs in your life, right? You, you gloat too much, but you know, we, we feel good about it. But here's the thing, the one common thing of game, as one pastor puts it, at the end of the game, it all goes back in the box. At the end of the game, don't matter who won, who lost, how much fat your stack of Monopoly fake money is, it all goes back into the game. It all goes back into the box. And I think that's an apt metaphor for how we maybe should approach this life as well. With the things that drive us to be successful, winning, on top. And this is where you got to be really careful what the world around you tells is valuable and important and worthy of all your time and energy and resources. Because if you're not careful, you will just buy in and you won't even know it. Because, and this is part of my pastoral philosophy, and it's really challenging for our church, but I'll explain to you. I'm going to pull the curtain back a little bit. Part of my goal is to prepare every single one of you for death. Again, here's like, oh, man, you faked us out with the how to win in life. Okay, here it comes. And this is really challenging because some of you are in like your superhero age. Like you're pretty fairly young by this world's standards. You don't even get sick. When you get sick, like you take a Tylenol and you're better. Like that kind. Your body's strong. You can't imagine like breaking down. Like you laugh at old dudes like me when you see me play the game of basketball and like being sore for three weeks afterwards. You're like, oh, I'm not there. I'm going to live forever. And we know that's not true, but we kind of live like it. But I want to ask you as, as much wisdom as you can to realize that physical bodily death is coming for every single one of us. This is not meant to be a downer. It's meant to be a reality. That's why we do things like the Ash Wednesday. It's a stark reminder that we are from dust and to one day our bodies shall also return into the ground. So I want to prepare every single one of you for death. Because here's the thing, when you properly understand death, and I'm not saying being morbid, I'm not saying hide in your house because you're afraid of getting hit by, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying when you properly understand that death is a reality, it's inevitable for every single one of us, you can truly live life the way it was meant to be lived. When you have death as a clear understanding in your mind and you're not obsessed with it, then you can actually live life the way you were intended to live. Because that's what Paul is saying in verse 58 there. He's saying, therefore, my belief, therefore, considering all that has just come, talking about the resurrection, talking about this understanding of new life, therefore, in light of all that, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Because when we understand the resurrection, we start to understand that it all matters. When we understand direction, we start to understand there is no separate, like everything we do actually matters because there's going to be a resurrection of the body and there's going to be a renewal of it. That life is best lived in light of eternity. This life is most 
accurately and wisely lived in light of eternity. And thus we are free to give all that we have to serve God and others. We don't have to hold back. We don't have to measure ourselves. We can actually fully know that our labor is not in vain. And we get, we get a few examples of what this looks like. How do we win in this way? How do we win in life? And look at the final chapter, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Um, let's be honest. Some of y'all skip over these parts in the Bible because you're like, oh, it's just filler after the good doctrinal stuff. This is very, this is in light of understanding living in light of eternity and the resurrection. Therefore, he's telling, now, how do you win in this life? It's by treating your resource in the wild way. So we got a church in Jerusalem. And I know they counterculturally different you because they Jews and you Gentiles, but we're going to hurt them because we all family together. So we're going to collect every week so that we can benefit the church. And he's challenging them that winning is reflected in our generosity. If we really understand the resurrection, we will be generous people with the st- and stewarding the resources that God has blessed us with. Winning is reflected in our generosity. Man, I was so blown. I believe God can speak in so many ways. I was so blown away by a recent story I heard. Some of you might have heard this if you're a sports geek, but uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, um, one of the best basketball NBA players of all time, he famously recently was uh, called, he, he was known to do an auction. He was auctioning off pretty much a large majority of all his memorabilia, including most of his championship rings. And the man won a lot of rings, I think six championships in his life. He was auctioning off most of it. And there were some people, some haters, they're like, oh yeah, he's one of those guys that fell into bad financial situations. He's trying to, he's like, no, I'm good. I, I'm actually real good. I'm, I, I'm set. I'm good financial planning. And here's what he wrote to explain why he was doing this. So when it comes to choosing between storing a championship ring or trophy in a room or providing kids with an opportunity to change their lives, the choice is pretty simple. Sell it all. (sighs) Looking back on what I've done with my life, instead of gazing at the sparkle of jewels or gold plating celebrating something I did a long time ago, I'd rather look into the delighted face of a child holding their first caterpillar and think about what I might be doing for their future. That's a history that has no price. Wow! There's a lot to learn from that. There's also kind of like, um, I I get a little sad. Because Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, you might be able to tell from his name, he's not a Christian. He's a very devoted um, adherent of Islam. Very devoted. And we don't share that common understanding of the resurrection. But look at how he lives with what he has. And I get a little embarrassed that as Christians, so often we don't live in this way. We actually have experts out there who are telling people how to make as much money as they can as Christians. And that's what honors God. And I I know there's a lot tied into that, so I'm not going to get into all that. How much more as people who believe in the resurrection do we now then look at what God has gifted to us, generously blessed us with, and see then, yeah, are we going to leave that as something in our trophy room to just kind of like sparkle at and, oh, look what's sitting in my house? Or are we going to say, what can be done for kingdom, for the eternity, through these things that I have? My gifts, my skills, my personality, and obviously my resources, my finances. 
So when it comes to money, Christians get real weird. There's some out there, they'll teach the goal of every Christian should be poverty. So y'all, you should give up your jobs. You should not be working. You should just, you know, you should not have money because Jesus hates people who have money. I'm, I'm like character, I know, right? I, I don't think that's accurate according to scriptures. Here's what I think is accurate. God does say we should be very generous. And I think what that means is I'm going to challenge some of y'all. You should go make as much money as you can. You're like, oh, we that just one of those kind of churches, huh? No, you should make as much money as you can. You should excel in your work. You should rise within you. You should try to get as much stature as you can so that you can share even more. So that you have even more to be able to distribute to others. Go. God has blessed you in the ability to, to accumulate, but don't keep it for yourself. That's meant to share with others. So go be excellent, but do it for the Lord. Do it for the Lord's work. Practically, we're going to talk about ways that you can even give in our church in, in a few weeks with the new church plant. It requires money. And why do we do it? Because we want more people to know the God of this eternity. We're, we're going to be raising a collection for our Peru mission team. And we want, to, we want you to give generously to that. Why? So we can help this good news go throughout the earth. And we want you to be generous givers. I know many of you already are in our church. We, we want to thank you for that. But guys... How do we view even the resources we have? So winning is reflecting our generosity. Look at, look at verse 5. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia. For I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend a winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. And we'll stop there. Um, if you read a lot of Paul's letters at the end of it, some of you, I know you're like me, and you just kind of skip over it because it sounds like he's just saying bye to a lot of people or saying, hey, I hope you're doing well, and yo, you're chilling, and you know, remember when I, I'm like, okay, that's not really teaching me anything here. But the more and more I see it, I'm like, that is significant, theologically deep material there of the scriptures because what it's reminding us is that relationships are so important. Paul goes to the point where he does a whole bunch of teaching in his letters, but he always usually includes like greetings and buys and telling them how much he misses them and he loves them and he remembers the time spent with them. Paul is saying, as much as that doctrinal stuff I put out, this is as much about knowing God and investing in relationships. He's even saying here, yo, I want to be with you, and, and maybe I'll even stay with you. How, what does he say? So that you may help me on my journey. It's not just people we can help, but also receiving help. What does it mean to be in a relationship where we are needing people, and they are also needing us? That's what family is. Because Paul, he didn't just want the Corinthians' money. He wants them. And church, can I encourage you? Winning is also reflected in our relationships. And this is something that the greater narrative is not going to push because it's going to tell you, push into all this stuff because this is what winning is in the world. But what I'm going to suggest to you guys, when we are biblically formed, some of our greatest ways of knowing we've won is by looking at the people around you. Who have you loved and who is loving you? Who is in your uh, biological families, but who's in your spiritual families? Who's also people maybe who don't know God that you're investing your life in? And it's important because that's what winning is. And you, the more people I walk with at the end of their journey, and this is, it's kind of stark to me um, because it, it's just pretty common, again, cross-culturally. Very few people tell me, man, pastor, 
I really regret that I didn't spend that extra night at the office killing it. Wow, I, I really regret that I didn't, like, go for that extra accomplishment. I mean, those are important. I'm not saying they're not important. But almost always it's, I wish I had more time um, with that person. Um, I, 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 it's coming, and I feel the end, but I wish I had some more time with my kids or with those dear friends or those people that I know are there but I think will always be there. I wish I had more uh, of that. And the common thing that God puts in us is while we have this flesh, invest in relationships because that's winning. That's winning. So just simple next step for some of you. What are some relationships that the Spirit right now is prompting you to attend to today? What are some relationships that maybe you've kind of taken for granted? One of the greatest temptations for us, I know I face it, is to resist accepting and embracing the world's scorecard for winning. I am totally able to fall into the world's understanding of what it means to win. Because what people discover in their final days is that even if the world says you are winning, you can actually be losing. By the world's standards, even if the world tells you, yo, you are killing it, you can be losing. You can have everything that the world says is valuable and not have God and truly have nothing. But guys, here's the beautiful, and you need to sit on that first part, but here's the beautiful flip side of it. Um, in this world's eyes, you, look, you can look like you're totally losing. You can look like that person who's giving all of your free time towards others, not building up your own brand. You can look like that person whose body is breaking because you are doing maybe so many different things. Maybe it's just breaking because it's breaking. Maybe you don't have much accumulated in worldly wealth, uh, wealth and riches. And people would look at you, and if they were characterizing who's made it in this world, they'd look at you and say, eh, not him, not her. But guys, in God's ways, if you are living in him, for him, for others, you are winning for the kingdom. You're killing it. Your life matters because you're sowing for eternity beyond even this earthly existence. And guys, this is not merely like an aspiration or ideal. It's following the path of the one we follow, Jesus himself. Because when you look at Jesus' last days before he went on this thing called a cross, um, you know, maybe some people are, yo, Jesus made it. Wow, he, he attracted some followers. Remember Joseph's boy? He was like, you know, doing some hammering and carpentry. But wow, he started preaching and people were following him. Yo, and miracles and, you know, bread multiply. Wow, great. Jesus did some stuff. Yo, he's winning. He's killing it now. Oh, man, did you hear what happened to him? Wow, by the end, he hanging on this tree, bleeding out like a sucker. Wow. Did you hear him? He was a blasphemer. Wow, he, he was lame. Wow, he didn't. His homeboys who said they're going to be with him till the end, they ride or die, they're not even with him. There are just a few women there. Wow, what a sad story. That dude's a total loser. If you end at the resurrection and don't understand what's going on in the deeper picture, he was definitely winning. He was winning in this thing we call the cross, the crucifixion, because it was conquering sin. But in the resurrection, being raised from the grave, he was conquering death itself. 
And Jesus was proclaiming what the world calls losing. This is the way that we win in sacrifice. He was that very seed that was put into the ground that dies, as the book of John describes, so that life might come forth. And for Jesus, there was no waste to his life. It looked like an absolute waste, but he understood resurrection. So he understood, though he was the man of heaven, he came to this earth and became the man of dust so that the people of dust, you and I, could be found in him and be made people of heaven. And it was worth him putting his seed into the ground, putting his life into the ground through this thing called a cross. Why? Because he loves us so much and he wants us to know eternal life in victory and to truly know what it means to win. And guys, there is no waste to your life when you see your life through the lens of eternity. Invest in eternal things. Let me ask you to stand with me. And we're going to come to this time when the table, we've been talking a lot about it during this book, a series of 1 Corinthians. The table's an invitation for you to come and, and soberly ask, where do I stand with God? That's one of the things. Um, if you're not a Christian, you should actually not come up to the table. But what I want to invite you to do right now is sit there and say, do I know the God of this resurrection? If not, maybe my life will just end with this life and an eternity without God. But if this is true, may I receive the good news of Jesus Christ that God's not telling me how to be a better person. He's saying the way you receive that eternal resurrection life is by receiving what Jesus did for you, which is dying on a cross, giving up his life as seed thrown into the ground so that life could flourish. And I'll invite you to receive that life today. And if you have received that life already, during this time, you can come up both aisles, come up, take a piece of uh, the bread and dip it in either cup and be reminded of the broken body of Jesus that leads us into resurrection and the shed blood of Christ that forgives us of our sins, makes us whole. I want to invite you to come up and receive that right here at the table. But pray before you do that. Are you ready for death? I know that sounds so far off for some of you, especially if you're young, but I want to prepare you for that because that's going to guide how we live in life. Lord, help us. We are people that um, have such tunnel vision, Lord, and we can barely see just a step ahead of us. But Lord, may you help us to live in light of eternity, in light of resurrection. For those of us who are in Christ and who know you and you know us, Lord, may we live our steps according to those ways and live life now as if we will be in a resurrected body for eternity. And that the things we do now with our body, with our money, with our work, with our relationships, they do matter. And help us to put that before you. And Lord, for others of us, maybe you're inviting us to receive that story as our story. Holy Spirit, you do what we cannot do. Save us, Lord, in Christ. So help us, Lord. Help us. So I want to invite you to pray. Maybe pray with one another. Come up. Receive the communion, and during all that, you can sing as well. Let's sing to the Lord. Be reminded of the mortality that we share, yet the hope that we share as well in the resurrection.